Good morning, Midland Free. Good morning. Thank you. It's so good to see you here today. Greatly encouraged as we um, uh, reunite and re-engage and reach out, seeing so many good people come back and plug in is an encouragement to me. So thank you. Um, as we get ready to hear from the Lord this morning, his words from his word, uh, let's take a moment and pray and uh, then we'll continue. Father, <coughs> thank you and praise you for your goodness and grace, Lord, your perfect God. And we do praise you for your word. Thank you for your words to us, and we pray that they would clearly speak this morning, that I would not get in the way, but your spirit would do his work. Um, We believe, Lord, in the truth of your word, in the power of the spirit, in the prayers of this people, and all God's people said, amen. Well, welcome here if you're just joining us, either in person or online. My name is Pastor Jeremy Lobdell. Welcome to the masked and unmasked and whoever or whatever you might be. We're glad you're here. Um, we're continuing our series in the book of the Ecclesiastes, and I know that's a little bit of a weird word, um, but I did tell those who were here last week what that word meant, and I'm just curious if anybody for any reason happened to remember anything that I possibly may have said. So does anybody know what the word Ecclesiastes means? It is the... Preacher, all right, thank you very much. It's just a preacher like Ecclesia, the gathering group, those who are called out to listen and hear the words of the preacher. So we're going to continue that. We're in chapter two today, chapter one last week. If you missed it, please reread that section and maybe even watch the sermon. There's some key points that set up uh, the rest of the book. But we're talking about um, fulfillment. That is the subject today, but I want to start with a story that Max Lucado tells in his book, The Eye of the Storm. It was February 15th, 1921, in New York City in the operating room of Kane Summit Hospital. There, a doctor is performing an emergency appendectomy, and in many ways, the events leading to the surgery are completely uneventful. The patient has complained of severe abdominal pain. The diagnosis is clear. It's an inflamed appendix. And Dr. Evan O'Neill Kane is performing the surgery. In his distinguished 37 years of medical practice, he's performed over 4,000 appendectomies. So the surgery is going to be just run of the mill for him. In every way except two. The first is the novelty of the operation. He's using local anesthesia in a major surgery. And Dr. Kane was a crusader against the hazards of general anesthesia at that time. And he contends that a local application is far safer. Many of his colleagues agree with him in principle. But in order for them to agree in practice, they will have to see the theory applied. Well, Dr. Kane searches for a volunteer and a patient who's willing to undergo this surgery while under local anesthesia, but it's not easy to find a human guinea pig. Many are squeamish at the thought of being awake during their own surgery. Others are fearful that the anesthesia might wear off and they would experience severe pain. Eventually, however, Dr. Kane finds the perfect candidate. And so on Tuesday morning, February 15th, the historic operation occurs the patient is prepped 
wheeled into the operating room and a local anesthetic is applied. And as he has done thousands of times before, Dr. Kane dissects the superficial tissues and locates the appendix. He skillfully excises it and concludes the surgery. During the procedure, the patient only complains of minor discomfort. And the volunteer is taken into post-op, then placed in the hospital ward. He recovers quickly and is dismissed two days later. Dr. Kane has proven his theory. But I said that there were two facts that made this surgery unique. One, of course, is the local anesthesia. The second is the patient. Dr. Kane operated on himself. He experimented on himself. Today we're going to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And what we will find is that the preacher, Kohelet, Ecclesia, the author, the one telling the story, is actually experimenting on himself. Here's the idea. They're look, he's looking for fulfillment. And you've seen our picture back there with the world and the sun. And he's describing life as we know it. All this stuff that's under the sun. What is our daily experience like? And where can we find fulfillment? Do you, like me, on occasion struggle with the answer to that? I know I do. And I wonder, you know, what if I had limitless means? What if I had limitless time? What if I had limitless ability? Think of all that I could accomplish. Think of all that I could change. Think of how much life would be different. If I had then, my wife has frequently heard me say, I've got an idea. (laughs) If I could, this is what I would do. Well, most people never come to that point with limitless resources or limitless time or incredible intellect. But this person experimenting on themselves actually is in that position. As king of their world, literally, they have endless resources, incredible intellect, infinite wealth, and they're able to do whatever they want. And so in his wisdom, in the right state of mind, not in some just hedonistic, pleasure-driven, whatever, this author says to themselves, he or she, whoever it may be, they say, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to conduct a logical, scientific experiment. Here is the deal. The book of Ecclesiastes, here's a slide. Ecclesiastes, if you want to think of this book, it is a science Experiment. Ecclesiastes is a science experiment. The author is going to test several things on themselves. Here's some of the things they'll test. I'm skipping ahead one slide. They're going to test to see if they can find fulfillment in pleasure. And they are going to pursue it to the nth degree because there's no limits for the king. They can do whatever they want. You'll see some of that in this passage. And it's not all good. This isn't just Christian happy stuff. Some of this is bad. But they're going to try it in their right mind to see if it'll work. Pleasure, achievement, how much can they build? How much can they conquer? How much can they do? How high can they climb? 
possessions? What can they own? Will it give them joy? The perfect car, the perfect house, the perfect boat, the perfect family, the perfect everything. Even sex. One of my children asked me recently, Dad, in the Bible, what is it when they say concubines, concubines? What is that? Oh, boy. Self-indulgence, wisdom, maybe in the infinite knowledge of countless libraries and counselors and PhDs, we can discover the meaning of life and despair. And the hypothesis, I'm not a scientist, so I messed this up. Please forgive me. I think you get the idea. But the hypothesis is this. Here's what they're going to test. His idea is that, here it is. Here's the slide. Fulfillment can be found under the sun. That's the hypothesis. On this earth, there is a way. One of these things will work, and we're going to test them all to see if it fulfills me. Each one to the nth degree. No limits. Whatever my eyes see, I will go after. Whatever my heart wants, I will claim and see if it works. And he'll be taking notes the whole way. In fact, you have those notes, his data, right here in chapter 2. So let's find out how that experiment went. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to follow along with me. Normally at our church, if you're new, what we do is we put the words on the screen because it's a shorter section, and then we hone in on a few specific spots. There's a lot of words here this morning, and so the words aren't going to be up on the screen. If you don't have a Bible, please uh, download an app or do something. Get a Bible. We'll give you one if you need one, but follow along. I'm going to read these, and then later we'll come back to unpack a few specific spots. But this is the broad overview of the author's experiment in chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 says this. They said, he said, she said, I said in my heart, come now, I will, here it is, test. Here's the test. I will test. Test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. And behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched my heart, how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom. See, they're keeping their mind in this whole process. And how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven. During the great days of their life. See there's pleasure. Number four accomplishment. Verse four. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks. And planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. Great works. Verse seven. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. That's a big one, isn't it? Let me come back to that in just a second because I think in our culture, it's too huge not to address that. So I'm going to read verse, the rest of verse 7 and 8 and then come right back. We'll do a little, little pocket here and then we'll go back to Ecclesiastes. I also had great possessions. See, possession is in verse 7 with slaves of herds and flocks. 
more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. Verse 8, I gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. So let me go back to verse 7. We're just going to push pause here on the full Ecclesiastes picture because I know there's a huge cultural issue here with regard to race and what's going on with the Bible. Because some people would, in sinfulness and error, claim that, see there, the Bible supports slavery. Absolutely not. Terribly wrong. Exact opposite of what you could possibly say. So wrong. Bible does not support slavery. Well, look there. It says he bought male and female slaves. Yes. And look at verse 8. It also says he had concubines. And for those of you who know what that is, that's bad. And in fact, the Bible says specifically that male and female were designed to be like one unit and no more. And never the two shall part. That's what the Bible says. And yet the Bible is a real book. It shows broken marriages. It shows infidelity. It shows homosexuality. It shows all of these things that we would say are outside of the biblical norm. Not because it's condoning those things. But it's saying this is what life is like under the sun. This is the reality that we live in in a fallen world. When we disobey God and sin against him, bad things happen. Even to good people. Like slavery. And it's not saying it's good. It's a terrible evil. Pursue the Bible throughout the rest of the New Testament. What do you see? You know how the Bible describes sin? As being enslaved to sin. I don't think if it wanted to portray something good. It would take the worst thing there is. Sin. And associate slavery closely with it. There's clearly a negative association there. And the thing that Jesus does when he dies on the cross. Is he frees us. From sin. Therefore slavery is bad. It's evil. It's terrible. And yes. There are slaves in this passage, and there are concubines, and there is wine, and there is pleasure. And what this author is doing is saying, if I wanted it, I took it to see if it would work. Whether it's women, or whether it's possessions, or whether it's people, it didn't matter. And took notes the whole way, because... In that way, this is completely consistent with the experiment. What the experiment is doing is saying, I am driven by my own self-interest to see if there's any way I can fulfill myself whatsoever. And that's one of the big issues with slavery. Slavery is one human being owning another human being for the purpose of fulfilling their self-interest. You don't become a slave owner because you want to benefit the slave. You become a slave owner because you want them to benefit you. That's one of the big issues. And that's why enslavement to any human being is always a problem. Because all humans are sinful. And we all serve ourselves. And therefore, whoever is the slave is going to have a bad experience. However, if you serve Jesus, who always puts your interest above his own, i.e. the cross... Then you have a good master. You have a good Lord. And you can faithfully serve him. And he will do what is best for you. But that's not any other human being. That's only Christ. 
So 100% always, all the time, slavery to another human being, categorically wrong. We can't own somebody. But the owner, the master of the house, the Lord God himself can. And if we serve him, then it's good because he will never sin against us. So we are slaves to Christ, slave to no man. God frees us from sin. Slavery is wrong, but it's totally consistent with Ecclesiastes' approach here. He's saying, I'm doing everything I possibly can in my own self-interest to see if it works, including gathering a lot of people to do whatever I tell them to do to make me happy. So, slavery. Verse 7 and 8, concubines, same thing. In verse 9, he says, I became great, surpassed all who were before me. Also, my wisdom remained with me. He wants to remind you, this is an experiment. He's doing it on purpose. And look at this, verse 10. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. Can you imagine that? I mean, don't, maybe. Whatever he saw he wanted, he took. Anything. Whatever. That's, That's pushing it. Yeah, this author pushes it way further than anything else. He kept his heart from no pleasure. And what did he find? For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. This was my reward. Then I considered all that my hands had done and all the toil that I expended doing it. And behold, it was all hebel, vanity, striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Another experiment, wisdom, verse 12. He turned to wisdom and madness and folly. Both extremes, tried them all. For what can man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. And I said, there is more wisdom, more gain in wisdom than folly. It is actually better. And as there is more gain in light than darkness. For the wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. So there is gain in wisdom, okay? And we'll get to wisdom and what it is in a little bit. But he perceived that even though he could gain all the wisdom in the world... Verse 15, what happens? I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will also happen to me. Why have I been so very wise? And said in my heart, this is also a vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there's no enduring remembrance seeing that. In the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. Yeah, it's better for a while, but then what? You die. And so does the fool. No different. Your death might be worse than his. So verse 17, he switches from wisdom to despair. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all his vanity and striving after the wind. I hated my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise or fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I had toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is hebel vanity. So I turned and gave my heart to despair over all the toils of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is hebel vanity and great evil. 
What is a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work vexation. And everyone who works said, Amen. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. So what then? Is it all hevel? Here's the conclusion of his, his outcome to his experiment. Here is the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. This is the main idea of this book. And you will see it come up over and over again in different ways. But he'll continue to work it through. Verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or have enjoyment? For the one who pleases him has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. This is the word of God. Thanks be to the Lord. Amen. It's a hard word. It's not an easy word. It's a thoughtful, philosophical, deep how many of you read Ecclesiastes for breakfast and are like, woohoo, great day, positive? <laughs> you know, it doesn't always work that way. And yet, it is so theologically significant and meaningful that we have to wrestle with it to come to the same conclusion that the author does is this is that here's the conclusion, here's the slide. His hypothesis is false, it's wrong. He tested all of them under the sun in this life, in this world. And it turns out none of them work. He thought he could, but he didn't. No fulfillment can be found in these things under the sun. Remember what he tested. We just read. Here's the list again. Pleasure, achievement, possessions, sex, self-indulgence, wisdom, and despair. Don't raise your hands, but how many of you want those? How many of you chased after them, including me? Oh, well, that'll give me fulfillment. That'll work. Maybe even in your own education, your teachers tell you these things. Get good grades so you can go to a good college, so you can get a good job, so you can make good money, so you can get a good wife, so you can have a good life, right? There's the outcome. But this guy does that and says, this word that I keep bringing up again. Here it is. We talked about it last week. Here's a slide. Hebel. It is all Hebel. And over and over again, as you can see, compared with other books in this next slide, it is vanity chasing after the wind. Everything he experiments with doesn't work. So what then? Does it lead us to nihilism? No. Does it lead us to hedonism? No. Instead, verse 24 tells us we are to accept and enjoy our portion. The title of today's sermon is Accept and Enjoy. Accept and Enjoy. Here's the outcome of verse 24 and 25. Accept and enjoy. Let me first talk about accepting in verse uh, 24, our, our, our portion, our lot in life. Ecclesiastes talks about our portion, that thing that we get. Let me give you an illustration here from our lives. One of the things our families likes to do is go to a local restaurant and buy a pie. Okay, no advertising this morning, but the best pie in Midland you can buy at 
Just kidding. All right, you fill in the blanks. I'll try not to. But there's good pie here to be found in Midland. And we try not to eat too much of it. But on occasion, we splurge and we go out and we get a big pie. Well, inevitably, what happens, you know, there's five members of our family, but there's six pieces of pie or whatever else. And everybody wants to look at how it's cut. And if you only have two people, it works pretty good because you can say, all right, you slice it and then you choose first. The person who slices doesn't get to choose. The person who doesn't does. And that works out okay. But when you got five people and six slices, you're just stuck. (laughs) And you come to the end and someone gives in, but everybody's still battling and says, I want this slice. It's bigger. This one's got more topping or this one's got this or this one's got that. And the whole time as a dad, you're just thinking, man, we drove across town. We spent the money. We bought the pie. Why can't you just be happy with whatever you get? (laughs) Maybe this only happens to me. Like, oh, man, good grief. There might be one more blueberry on that one. I don't know (laughs) what happened there. But it's so hard for us as human beings to accept our lot, to accept our portion when we don't get to choose, when we don't slice it. Amen? We don't always get to choose. There's this portion, there's this lot, there's this spot in time and history that God has carved out for us. But so many times we treat our Heavenly Fathers just like kids do their earthly parents and say, I don't like it, it's not good, I want bigger, give me better. How do you think God feels about that? know how I feel when I buy the pie. Yeah, he did a lot more than buy the pie. He sacrificed his only son. And we turn around and tell him we don't like it. It's no good. Could have done better. Should have done different. Why'd you give that to so-and-so, not me? It's hard, isn't it? We have to accept what we're given from the hand of God. This is our lot. This is our portion This is our allotment, our ration, our share. Over and over again in Ecclesiastes and Job and Genesis, you see it with the Old Testament, the people of Israel, even until 12 tribes, you know, the promised land is broken up into different sections. You guys get this. You guys get that. Abraham and Lot, they have issues. Who gets what? It's a natural fallen human tendency to want what someone else has, to want better and want different. And we spend our whole lives chasing after what we want and what we didn't get, and we're chasing the wrong things. And God says, here's who I've made you. Here's what I've given you. Will you please accept it? And so many times I found myself in frustration and in error when I reject it and say, yeah, that's pretty good, but I think I could do better. (laughs) You know, that's not so bad, but if I just did this and this and this, then I'd get an even better outcome. I begin to pursue it, and I try, and I struggle, and I spend. I spend my money, my effort, my toil, my emotions, and I come, and I finally get to that spot, and I'm like, yes, I got it. And then I look at how much waste follows behind me. I think, man, that thing that I spent it all on, it's not nearly worth all that. I probably would have been happier if I would have just stayed here. And used all that same energy, effort, and everything else to enjoy what I had. Why don't we accept what the Lord gives us? We think we can do better. 
Here's why I think in the Western world it's so difficult. There's a commentator by the name of Ian Provan in the NIV application commentary. He says this. Here's a quote. The Western world indeed is at the heart of the ever more frantic pursuit of self-actualization and self-fulfillment. And at the heart of that lies this conviction that the universe is comprehensible and therefore malleable. It can be fashioned to our own ends, enabling the constant march of progress towards a universal or at least a personal utopia. We can do this. We can figure it out. We're smart. We know how to get where we want. And if we just try hard enough and spend enough effort, we'll get there and it'll be great. And the author of Ecclesiastes totally unpacks that in deconstruction. Are you kidding me? Are you crazy? I tried this. It didn't work. I tried that. It didn't work. Why? Verse 15 of chapter 1. Look at this. He realizes what is crooked cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted. We can't redeem creation. We can't fix this world. That's why we need a savior. Sure, we can do good things to hold back evil and make it a little bit better. But ultimately, it's still broken. And it will never be fixed until the creator comes back and recreates it. Only he can make all things new, not me. Therefore, we have to get over this idea that it's our effort Look at what else Ian says. He says, look, instead, accept from the hand of God rather than striving or struggling against it. Back to chapter two of Ecclesiastes. Listen, there is nothing better for a person than that they should eat and drink and find enjoyment in your toil. This is from the hand of God. Here's God's hand in your life. He's given you something to do. Yeah, we all make decisions We all have experiences, and we shoulda, coulda, woulda. But at the end of the day, here we are now. And we can't do anything about that which is behind. The only thing we can do is move forward with today. So number one, accept your position. Uh, Accept your portion. What about Dr. Kane? Think about him for a minute. What if Dr. Kane was like, you know what? Man, good grief, Lord. I went to college, I went to medical school, I did my residency, I did my fellowship, I did everything my teachers told me to do. I spent 37 years of my life pursuing the most advanced technological and medical science in the world. I've helped thousands of people, I've done everything I could to eradicate this horrible thing that happens to human beings. And now you give it to me? What? After I've helped so many people, the irony, you know what, Lord, forget it. Never mind. Why try? Nihilism. Or perhaps Dr. Kane could have said, you know what? Hang it all. I'm just going to grab some of the good stuff out of our anesthesia kit and enjoy myself. Make myself feel good. Why would I care? I tried, Lord. You didn't bless it. You didn't give anything. Instead, you gave the very thing I was trying to fix to me. Might as well have fun and die. Hedonism. 
He could have done either of those things, but instead he doesn't by accepting his lot and saying, yes, Lord, the irony is over the top. You set me on this career path to help. And the very thing I was trying to help, I came down with. But now here is the ultimate opportunity for me to be used by you. I'll be that guy. I'll be that guy. And I'll experiment on myself. I think this is what it means to accept our portion in life. I don't think it means like if you're born into slavery that you say, oh, good, I'm a slave. I think the Bible teaches that you, wherever you're at, do your very best to honor God. Okay, And that may at times mean disobeying human beings. But we got to be really careful when we apply that text. Because we could just broad swath, paint anything we don't like with that. And do whatever we want. And that's not the point. The point is being made in the image of God means glorifying him with everything we have. And accepting the portion he's given to us. Our intellect, our job, our spouse, our past decisions, our life path, our health limitations... Everything, we say, yep, that too is from the hand of God. If we could do that and then just take that mediocre little bit of energy we have left and spend it on enjoying those things, how much better would our lives be? How much better? Instead of using our energy to fight against it, use our energy to maximize what we have. Number one, accept. Number two, enjoy. Jumping ahead a little, Ecclesiastes chapter 9 says the same thing. Just showing you I'm not making this up. It says, look, here's what we have. Here's what you've been given. Therefore, go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved of what you do. He gave it to you, so do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife Singular, whom you love all the days of your life, vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion. This is how the pie has been sliced. And in your toil and at which you toil under the sun. What does that mean? Every day, his mercies are new. Every single morning. You know, I'm not really looking forward to winter. (laughs) You know? But what does that mean? I get grumpy now. No way. Did you see yesterday? It's beautiful. Go outside this morning. It's fresh and cool. This afternoon it's going to be hot. Take it in. Enjoy it. Seize the day. This is that carp diem stuff that we love in the movies and other places. Pleasure is fleeting. There's not going to be leftover pleasure for tomorrow. This is the idea when Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread. Because he wants you to follow him in faith, he's not going to give you a whole stack of bread. He's going to give you enough for today. And so when he does, you don't say, hey, where's the whole stack? You say, thank you. This is so good. I love it. And when you enjoy life and you enjoy what you have in that way, then it gives glory to the giver. The idea is, as the giver, he wants you to receive the gift, not begrudgingly, but graciously. And be like, thank you so much. I love it. I enjoy it. And that will make him happy. But if our reception is, that's not good enough. How does that make him feel? But there is value in pleasure. Pleasure is wholesome. God created pleasure. He put those 
things in you, whatever scientifically they're called, (laughs) to make you feel good. He wants you to feel good. But not in the bad ways, chasing after things he didn't give, but in the good ways, enjoying what he did. So receive it openly and happily and enjoy it today. Verse 24 again, listen, for there's nothing better. This is as good as it gets. Right now under the sun, this is as good as it gets. For a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil, this also is from the hand of God. For apart from him, we prayed this at the start of our service, apart from him, who can eat or drink or have enjoyment? Our very power to think C.S. Lewis says, is his power communicated to us. Everything is from the hand of God. Therefore, enjoy it and bring glory to him. Do you, like me, struggle to find fulfillment? The proper response to life's limitations is not sulking, but an energetic involvement in one's present task. That's a direct quote from Dr. Craig Lobdell. What do we need to accept to enjoy our present reality? Accept and enjoy your portion. Father, thank you For your word. Which is true. Help me help us to accept and enjoy. In Jesus name. Amen.